everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Before 1939, she was seen in the world as a star, but not in America. So America was still Jim Crow lynching people, whereas she was in Paris, uh, London. Uh, the Nordic countries embraced her most of all, Sibelius, Finland. This is where she was traveling when no one, white or black, was traveling that much. She'd already given in one year 160 concerts in Europe. That was filmmaker Rita Coburn talking about the legendary opera singer Marian Anderson. In 1939, Anderson gave a concert at the Lincoln Memorial that became one of the landmark moments of the civil rights movement. Today, Rita Coburn, who directed a new documentary about Anderson, is going to give us a fresh look at Marian Anderson's truly remarkable life. I'm Milan Brevere, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Director-producer Rita Coburn has won numerous awards for her films, including the Emmy. Her 2016 documentary called Maya Angelou, Still I Rise, earned her a Peabody. Her latest film is Marian Anderson, The Whole World in Her Hands. It's showing on PBS, and it tells the singer's story in her own voice. Listen and learn from Rita Coburn why Marian Anderson is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today to Rita Coburn. 
producer, director, filmmaker, and so much more about Marian Anderson, classical singer and one of the all-time greats. Welcome, Rita. Thanks for having me, Milan. We're looking forward to our conversation about Marian Anderson. Were she alive today, she would be celebrating her 125th birthday. How did you get to make her the subject of your great documentary? And how should we remember her? Well, I have been in um, documentary television on a local and national level for a long time now. And what I find is generally my subjects choose me. And then I chase the story until the story starts to chase me. And um, I had just finished Maya Angelou and really didn't know what I would do. I had some real concerns about that. What would follow Maya Angelou, you know? And I went off chasing a documentary that didn't pan out. And then um, I'm like... um, Marian Anderson, a real person of prayer. And I don't believe people come back to speak to you, but I do believe that what's on your heart gets in your dreams and all the rest of that. And so I was really concerned about this and had a dream. And in that dream, Maya Angelou said to me, your next documentary will be on Marian Anderson. And I thought, Marian Anderson, I wasn't thinking about her. And then she was stern with me the way that she normally was in private conversations. And she said, she has my initials M.A. I woke up (laughs) with a start because I thought, my gracious, and... um, I rolled over and my uh, computer is generally right there. And I ordered a book on her. So I had that date and I had the book, My Lord, What a Morning. Mm. And it was her autobiography. And uh, I looked for documentaries that had been done. And I saw that Weta had done one. And I went on to chase this other documentary. And one year I was just so frustrated. I said I was doing other things, obviously. And then I just decided to go play golf. And when I got off the golf course in Florida, I got a call from Michael Cantor. And he said, I have a documentary you want, I'd like you to do. Now, he's the executive uh, producer of American Masters. And we had worked together on the Maya Angelou. And he said, it's Marian Anderson. I said, I'll do it. He said, don't you want to? I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I will do it. And so uh, she chose me. My daughter studied classical music at the Manhattan School of Music at Lawrence University and in Vienna. And so I was always involved in classical music and opera. Those were some of my go-to uh, choices of music along with jazz. And so uh, I was familiar with the music and I began to collect the books and began to read uh, about her and read about the industry. And I really feel that it just called me. It just called me. And I have to say to you that as this documentary is airing now, Uh, It's bittersweet for me because I've lived with her every day for the past three years and kind of don't want to let her go. I've become very engaged and very happy 
to uh, excavate uh, the life of a woman who was born in 1897. So interesting. Uh, just that's got to be a unique inspiration for a for a filmmaker, the one you just described, where not only uh, Maya Angelou, but Marian Anderson were both chasing you, it sounds like, uh, to uh, to do this documentary. How is it different from other documentaries about Marian Anderson? And perhaps you can tell us, were there any surprises um, for you when you were making it? Well, again, the concept of chasing the story until it chases you is a very important concept for me. So I don't go into a documentary thinking it'll be made like the last one, or it will even be made the way current documentaries are on television. I think that that person has to speak to how they want their story to be told. And if you're very sensitive to that, you will find out why. So everything I look at lately is a drone shot. I think that's wonderful. But there were no drones when Mary and Anderson, there were aerials. Uh, So I make sure that I try to stay in the time period. But what was most intriguing for me was that I went to the University of Pennsylvania, the Kislak Center, where the Marion Anderson Collection is housed. And I sent myself there. I have a son that lives in Philadelphia. And I just went there for three or four days, just looking and trying to feel where this story really was and driving around the areas where she lived. And one of the things that I found was that the libraries archives were wonderful and the people there were wonderful. And David McKnight said to me, you know, we're just putting in audio recordings that we have for her that hadn't been uploaded to the archive yet. And I'll share the transcripts with you. And these recordings are reel-to-reel tapes. Now, a lot of people don't know what those are anymore, but Uh, let's say they preceded the eight-track tape and all the rest of that, the cassette and so on. And so I thought in my spirit, this is something new. I need to listen. And so the reason the documentary is different is because as I listened to 34 reel-to-reel tapes and had them transcribed, I was able to get her voice. Now, when she did a documentary and she was alive, and she talked to you, that was one thing. But for a long time, you didn't hear her voice. And these tapes were the tapes for her preparing for her autobiography. And a lot of what she said was not in the autobiographies. And so what I did was I used her voice, and then I went to any other places where there were recordings of her voice, um, Studs Turkle, George Shirley, and so on. And so while she's not a true narrator, she does give her opinions on what was happening. And so I think that her voice leads the way in this documentary. The other thing, therefore, that is different about it is every time she talked on an audio tape, we had to cover that with something because television being the visual medium, we had no pictures. And we were already heavily relying on archival footage 
and pictures for everything else. So I decided to do reenactments when she was speaking. So we shot reenactments in Philadelphia and we shot them in Chicago at a landmark house owned by George Manning called the Beeson Home. And that Beeson Home had a carriage house. It had a carriage from the 20s and he's from the turret to the cellar. He kept it in 1920s condition. And so we used it and the grounds around it in the reenactment to go back to her childhood, to take her to Europe and so on. And so I think that would be not a subtle, but it is done subtly, but that would be a big difference in the way that the documentary is told. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Well, tell us about her. Where did she grow up? And probably most interestingly, how was her great gift discovered and how was it nurtured? I'm very happy that you asked that question because a lot of people see her as 1939 and the Lincoln Memorial. Mm -hmm. And of course, by that time, she would have been 42. Marian Anderson grew up in Philadelphia on a street that was integrated. She went to schools with a large diversity of uh, people, white, um, from different uh, from different countries that were settling at the time in um, in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia was one of those border towns on the cusp of the South and the North, and her parents moved there as part of that early migration for her to have a better life. And before schools were segregated, they were integrated, and people don't understand that. And uh, everybody just went to school. And so she grew up in that environment in Philadelphia, which had the largest Black population at that time of people coming and gathering there. And I think that um, Philadelphia was uh, a place where, when she grew up, with her mother and her father. The grandmother was nearby. The grandfather was nearby. The church, eventually when she moved, when she was younger, was literally across the street. And the church was social programs. It was music. It was education. It was where you would go if you were out of work. And it was a community that nurtured her. And I think she was very well nurtured by her father and her aunt. Her mother was solid, but she wasn't the person who was in love with music. Her aunt was in love with music and her father. And what doesn't make the documentary, her father took her to a local opera when it was in town. And when she was very young, he died when she was 12. By the time she was 12, she had heard classics, what you would call classical European singing, because that preceded, obviously, uh, anything like um, when Thomas Dorsey came along with gospel, the Fist Jubilee singers, the type of singing, the inflammatus, the type of singing that was done in the Black church was high art, and it was what people learned. And so 
that environment nurtured her singing. And then Roland Hayes, who was an international African descent uh, son of a person who was uh, his, his family called hogs. And when they called hogs, if you know this in the South, you call hogs for a very long time. You learn to have a breath that comes up and out and goes up and down. And it is what calls hogs. And his ability to do that prepared him to be able to hold notes and to go up and down the scales. And he became a person who would mentor her for the rest of her life. And so that wonderful question that you have about the nurture, it was the family, it was the church, it was the extended community. And that is, and her aunt and her father, and that's where it came from. So fascinating. Now, you mentioned 1939. She's probably most famous for the concert she gave outside the Lincoln Memorial in April of that year. Let's talk about that 1939 concert. And for those who don't know the history, perhaps you could take us through uh, what happened and how it came about. Well, by 1939, Marian Anderson, out of her own agency, had saved money and had won awards, particularly won by the Rosen. Wall Foundation, which was the Jewish organization that supported African Americans, the NAACP right prior to that, was actually in its initial, it was run by whites. And uh, Walter White, who was Black, um, heard her voice. And James Weldon Johnson, who uh, pinned with his brother, lift every voice and sing. So the artistic community was very solid. But Marian Anderson had been to Europe. Out of these, Rosenwald Foundation helped her to go to Germany to study German. And so before 1939, she was seen in the world as a star, but not in America. So America was still Jim Crow lynching people. Whereas she was in the she was in Paris, uh, London, uh, the Nordic countries embraced her most of all. Sibelius, Finland. This is where she was traveling when no one, white or black, was traveling that much. She'd already given in one year 160 concerts in Europe, and when Tuscanini. Uh, said that she was, uh, her voice was one you could hear only once in a hundred years. Saul Hurok took another, a Jewish man who had lived in Philadelphia, who was the impresario, the agent of the day. He took her work all across the world and really helped call a brand, as we would call it today for her. So by 1939, she's come back to America. She has been to the White House and made a friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. Howard University 
and Walter White from the NAACP wanted her to continue to sing in Washington, D.C. every year. However, now, because people had heard about her, there was not enough space in almost any given place. The Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR, had Constitution Hall, and Constitution Hall could seat 4,000. So everybody said, let's take her to Constitution Hall. And Constitution Hall said, we have a whites-only policy, and she cannot sing here, essentially. And as that happened, you can imagine you sang all over the world, but in your own country. You cannot go to Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., the capital. Well, thank God for the coalitions that came together. Howard University, one of our first historically Black colleges, Mary McLeod Bethune, who was put in place in education with the Roosevelt administration, they formed a committee, an interracial committee. And Saul Hurat joined in on, we're going to find a place for her to sing. Now the story gets fuzzy. We don't know if it was a person from Howard or if it was the secretary, the assistant secretary of the interior, the Chapman, or the secretary of the interior, uh, Ickes, who said, let's do it at the Lincoln Memorial. But somebody said this, and of course, they went to Eleanor Roosevelt. And as the story goes, Eleanor Roosevelt, who loved classical music and had met Marian Anderson through that and had had her not only at the White House for a private party, but also, which was a big deal because Black people didn't come to the White House until the Roosevelts took this kind of position. And then so you now have this confluence of people crossing over boundaries to change some of the facade of a racial construct in America. And it's through music and it's through art. And they got to know one another. So Eleanor Roosevelt, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, tells uh, the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, can Marian Anderson sing? And he said, I've been hearing about her for so many weeks. She can sing from the top of the Washington Monument if she wants to, <laughs> sure. You know, just let her sing. And once that happened, they had one week to pull everything together. And so April 9th, 1939, to the credit of the racism of the DAR at the time, instead of 4,000, she sang for 75,000. And as you see all the mics in front of her, she went across the world with her voice and all across America. And even a 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. heard her sing and was inspired and wrote his first essay that was published after that. It was a huge deal. It was, you have to go back to Jim Crow, 1939, America, people being hung, um, fighting fights for freedom all around the, the country. And then to see that this relationship was formed 
uh, that allowed her to sing there. And now you have an interracial audience, pictures of whites and blacks, elbow to elbow, watching this woman sing and being just taken by her voice. It created a pride for African-Americans. It created some coalitions, some lasting and some that did not for white Americans to say, there you are able to do what we thought black people could not do. We thought of them as less than human. We thought that they could be workaday billies, but not high art. We didn't think that they could learn German. My goodness, they can barely speak English. All of that was dispelled on April 9th, 1939. Such an extraordinary moment in history. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Now, that concert also turned Marian Anderson into an international symbol of the struggle for civil rights for some of the reasons that you already alluded to. What was her role in the civil rights movement starting in the 40s and onward? I think that everybody says, or let's say this, there are people who felt that she was a reluctant participant. In my research, I don't find that at all. I think that one has to understand that 1939 and 1940 and 1950 and 1960, I love that you go over those decades, were changing decades in the face of America. The first thing that happened in 1939 was after that concert and with the help of Saul Hurat, she became one of the highest paid entertainers 
in the world at that time. What she was making at that time amounted to what would be $4 million today. And for a Black woman born in 1897, that was pretty much unheard of. So now she's making a lot of money and she's now doing concerts all over America and all over the world. It's breaking down barriers, but there are still doesn't matter how famous she is, she can't stay in certain hotels. Uh, she she comes to Princeton, <laughs> and that's in you know Princeton. And uh, Albert Einstein hears that she's been turned down at a hotel, and she has to stay with him, and he offers her home. Gaps were bridged. Their relationship became a relationship after which uh, Albert Einstein did a lot of work in Black colleges after that meeting because he understood something. So she was chopping down barriers left and right. Also in the 40s, after a 24-year on-again, off-again relationship with um, Orpheus King Fisher, they marry and they try to live in Danbury, Connecticut. They try to buy 50 acres. They're turned down. It said, if you don't buy 100, we won't sell you the property because around you, the property loses value because you are here. That's what is said to a woman who sang for kings and queens. And they sent her husband because he was light enough to pass to get the, the property. But they had the agency and the funds and they bought the 100 acres. So I will give the 40s to those opportunities. In the 50s, the NAACP that loved her, that nurtured her, said, you know what? Uh, enough of this vertical segregation where you think that that's okay. We will boycott you until you call for integration at your concerts. You have got to start somewhere, step up. And she did. And she said, okay, if you're not going to integrate the concert, I won't be there. That was the 50s. The 50s was also Brown versus Board and the implementation of that, the killing of Emmett Till, the, the country being torn apart uh, in the 50s with, uh, with Little Rock. And so in the 50s, in 1955, she breaks the barrier at the Met and she sings Ulrika in Balo and Mascara. And everybody that knows opera will know that I messed that up. But <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, there you have it. The 50s, she calls for integrated concerts. She gets on the stage at the Met. And by that time, she's almost 60 years old. She doesn't have the voice for opera anymore, but she knows that she must do it and she must be that symbol. She rises to the occasion. The 60s is another place. The 60s brings us the Kennedys who embrace her. The 60s bring us the March on Washington where she makes it to the podium and sings. And it's back to that whole 1939 Lincoln Memorial having christened that in a place for civil rights and protests. 
the first time because at that time in 1939, you're shoulder to shoulder, white and blacks. It's put all over the world, the pictures. Now, 63, it's a more active, the march for jobs and freedom, the fight for freedom. And she sings there. By now, though, she's it's 63, she's 66, and her career is beginning to close. So thank you for the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I think that would be the, the places I would land in those decades. Amazing history lesson, Rita. Let, let's talk about you for a minute and some of your other work. You've won many awards, including an Emmy. You won a Peabody for your documentary on Maya Angelou. Why has it been important to you as a filmmaker to make films about great women like Marian Anderson and Maya Angelou? Thank you for that. Hmm. Here's what I will say. My mother is 99 years old. Mm. My father was born in 1916. I grew up in a small town outside of Chicago. It was an all-Black town. There were two white women in that town who were married to Black men. We did not know as children that they could only live there because they would not be accepted. Uh, our schools were not integrated until 1968. I had no real knowledge of white people. I had black people. I had black stories. And when I went to school, I saw none of my stories. I saw I was erased. I was in Dick and Jane for three years. We didn't have other books. I wasn't there. Uh, I loved Pippi Longstocking. And then I saw the racism in those pages. And I thought, why are our stories not told? And why aren't we respected? And I loved my community. And so as I began to write and become a storyteller, I published a book. Uh, meant to be in, I think it it sadly came out the year of, um, I th- it was 2002, yeah. Um, and so I, it's kind of autobiographical, but it's a novel uh, because I loved my community so much and I didn't see them anywhere. And so I kind of actually read a Toni Morrison book, The Bluest Eye. And I said, I didn't like the fact that she told our stories. And she said that we were poor and had to stuff a, 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 a towel in, in cracks so to keep wind out of the window. And I said, when I grow up, I'm going to write a book and you're not going to be able to tell whether I'm black or white. And then I got up and I started to write and tell stories and the storytelling morphed from books to, uh, to documentaries and to things. And I embraced that I could only tell who I was and that not enough people knew and they should know about my community. They should know about the women who could say one word or look one way, and you learned what was in every book that you'd ever read just by that. They should know about my mother, and they should know about Marian Anderson, and they should know about 
Maya Angelou. And I would like to do documentaries on Black men. I had a wonderful relationship with my father. And they, I, I just needed to have a place to say, let us do some of our stories. Yes, we can do other stories and other people can do some of our stories. But you don't know me. Let me tell my story. And let me have the fun and the the and the privilege of researching about my own people because they were not by and large in the history books. They were not taught to anyone. And so most of our history is oral. Most of it, if you don't go listen to the tapes and listen to the people and sit in front of them, you won't know what happened because what wasn't told was also conflated into misrepresentations. So everybody has something that they must do. And I feel like the griot by the door in Africa to the village that can say seven rains ago, this happened here and that happened there. But I get to use a camera I get to write and I get to research to tell you the part of our story. And I feel very blessed to be able to do that. I'm excited to talk about who we are. That's wonderful. Now, both of these women clearly faced racism, as you've described, but their lives uh, were full of challenges as a result, full of struggles, but also great, great achievements. What gives you hope today as we close this fascinating conversation? What gives you hope, Rita? I think whenever there's an injustice and one person is in the room with everything and the other person is on the outside of the door with some things, the person in the room with everything will have to open the door and let that person in. And I have the hope, as what happened with Marian Anderson, the highest woman of the land opened the door and let her in and saw her as a person. My Angela would always say to me, and it wasn't one of the sayings I liked the most of hers because I didn't understand it. She said, only equals can become friends. And I thought, what is she talking about? What I realized until a person sees you as equal, you really can't be a friend. You can be a servant. You can be an associate. You can be that person down the street. I think until I walk into companies and into uh, opera houses and into grocery stores and into, you know, corporations and entities and nonprofits and see Black men in offices and Black women and brown people in offices and everywhere with, throughout that, that we're standing on precepts and we're not doing the work. I'm looking for the people who are going to say, put Mary McLeod Bethune over education. Uh, let Walter White sit down and tell us we really have to have an anti-lynching bill. Uh, let's um, let's have uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and uh, President Joe Biden 
uh, talk to people in the community and forge relationships. And let's make sure that in colleges and places that people aren't just checking boxes. So I'm hopeful that we can triumph and and we will be a much better and stronger America. But I will tell you that Maya Angelou used to tell me, she said, you know, racism is something that when you wake up in the morning, it's seeped through under the door at night. It's gotten under the covers and you have to scrape it off your skin. And you have to do that every day. So the more conversations we have about privilege, about bias, and the more we listen to one another, there is hope. And I believe that. Well, that's a wonderful statement. And I'm afraid there's too much of that seepage today of racism. So I hope we can use the metaphor that you gave us of opening the doors and all of us be door openers. Thank you, Rita Coburn. You're a wonderful storyteller. And thank you for this walk through history. It's been really fascinating. And you've made us so much smarter about the great Marian Anderson. Thank you for having me, Milan. I, I thank you for what you do. You are opening doors with your program. And I really appreciate that and, and respect you for it. And much success. Thank you. That was really inspiring. What a great opportunity to look back and to learn. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, we should remember Marian Anderson for so many things. For her Lincoln Memorial Concert. For being the first African-American to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. And for using her amazing voice throughout the decades to fight for equality. Second, know that when people from different backgrounds unite for a common cause, great things can happen. Rita Coburn tells us that the 1939 Lincoln Memorial Concert took place because a confluence of people crossed over boundaries to challenge racism. Finally, let's make sure that all voices are being heard. Rita Coburn makes films about women like Marian Anderson and Maya Angelou because the history of Black Americans has been largely overlooked for so long. She asked herself, why are our stories not being told? You can learn more about Marian Anderson, the whole world in her hands, by going to pbs.org. You'll find viewing times for local stations, and you can even watch the documentary online. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous Podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect, whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 